Well, good morning again. It is good to see you. Thank you for joining us for part of your 4th of July and celebrating with us and singing with us. My name is Corey, and I get the honor and privilege of being the lead pastor here at GFC, and I'm excited to continue our conversation uh, in our series this summer called Confronting Christianity. But before I do that, I actually wanted to tell you just a quick story. One of the things that we talk about, and you'll hear Pastor Andrew or I mention, is when we welcome you, we say hi. We say hi not just to the people in the room, but we say hi to the people watching online as well. And so we've talked before, we've called it our online campus and how important it is to us to be able to connect online. And so one of the things that happens with that is every once in a while I get kind of a cool email. And one of the things I got a couple of weeks ago was an email from somebody that was saying, hey, I'm, I'm checking out your church and I just wanted to know some questions. And so they're moving here in the fall and they asked me some questions and I responded to them. And one of the cool things is they said, hey, we're liking what we're seeing. We're actually going to plan to attend, but until we get there, we're going to watch online every week. And so one of the cool things is because we're able to connect online with people, someone has already joined our church virtually before they're here physically. And that goes to what we're doing. And so thank you to those of you at the beginning of the year. We, we said, hey, we want to put funds towards this and celebrate that. So I don't want to embarrass the person so that when they get here, everyone's like, oh, I heard about you. Like, I don't want to do that, but I'll say hi to you as you're watching from online. So I just want to celebrate that today. But we're continuing our conversation in confronting Christianity. This is not a conversation. This is your first time with us. This is not a conversation that's unique to us. This is based on a book by a woman named Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin, and she wrote this book in 2019. And what we've been doing over the course of the summer is asking really difficult questions that can come to Christianity. They might be questions that someone might come to you and ask as a Christian that you may have a difficult time answering. There may be questions that you've asked yourself and, and wrestled through and kind of figured out what is going on and how do I answer this? How do I have an answer to this difficult question? And one of the things that I've encouraged us to do is to lean into that difficult question, to figure it out, to think it through, to find an answer. Because if our faith can't stand up to difficult questions, it's probably not worth following in the first place. And so we're asking these questions and we're digging in and kind of wrestling with them. Today's question is this, does religion cause violence? Does religion cause violence? Now the question is for religion overall, and when she wrote the book, it was addressing religion as a whole, but one of the things that we do, obviously in our context, is we think about Christianity. Does Christianity cause violence? What has happened in the world around us? What has happened in history that would cause someone to come and say, does religion or does Christianity cause violence? One of the quotes, and we've done this throughout the course of our series, we've gone to quotes from people so that we understand the opposite perspective. And there's a quote from a man named Bertrand Russell, and he said this in between the two world wars. He said, religion prevents us from removing the fundamental causes of war. Religion prevents us from teaching the ethic of scientific cooperation in place of the old fierce doctrines of sin and punishment. It is possible that mankind is on the threshold of a golden age, but if so, it will first be necessary to slay the dragon that guards the door. And this dragon is religion. This is a deep quote. So let me like break it down a little bit for us, okay? What he's saying is mankind at that point, about the 1930s, late 1930s, mid-1930s, has, has an opportunity to move forward. Has an opportunity to kind of come together over science and understanding and to come together as a species and to continue to progress forward as a people. And he's saying that the thing that's stopping us from doing that is religion. And he even says religion prevents us from removing the fundamental causes of war, this idea that there is 
a need for right and wrong, this need for punishment, for wrongdoing. And when that happens, it holds us back. And Bertrand Russell held this stance, this idea, like many of the other conversations we've had over the course of the first four weeks, there's this dichotomy, this fighting against Christianity and culture moving forward. And what's holding us back is, is religion. And so if we would just get rid of religion, we might be better off. That's what Bertrand Russell is saying. And, and to be honest, I get it. I understand why he would think that. I understand why he would say that. Not just from a Christian perspective, but from a religious perspective. And one thing that I think is true is that great injustices have been committed because of a fierce commitment to religious beliefs. Great injustices have been committed, not just by Christians, but by other religions too. People will hold so deeply to what they believe that when someone threatens that or someone decides that they disagree, we can kind of bristle and get upset and say, I'm going to push back against this because you're changing what's going on in my life and I don't like that. And so whether it's for Christians or someone else, another religion, injustices have been done in the name of religion. We can't deny that and we have to address that as we answer this question. I actually want to give four examples um, from history of different times where injustice was done because of religion, that violence came because of religion, and kind of just briefly touch on each. And the first one I want to look at uh, is kind of an inward look. Now, we weren't there for the Crusades, but this is kind of the black mark on Christianity. If someone were to come and ask you this question, ask me this question specifically about Christianity, almost always what's going to come up is the Crusades. In fact, we don't celebrate the Crusades. Have you ever noticed that? Like, we don't have, we're celebrating the 4th of July. We don't have a Crusades Day in Christianity. We don't celebrate that. It's not something we get excited about talking about. It's not, unless you really like history and you want to engage that way. But we don't, we don't brag about it. We don't get excited about it. We've even seen institutions and schools that used Crusader as their mascot have changed it over time sometimes because they recognize that there's a negative connotation. If you're not familiar with what went on in the Crusades, the, the beginning of the Crusades actually um, wasn't all Christians' fault. What happened was the city of Jerusalem was taken over by Muslims in the year 637. And so what happened was when they took it over, no one really liked that, that the Muslims had taken it over. But at the same time, they Christians and Jews were allowed to come in and they were allowed to visit the holy places they wanted to go to. They were allowed to come in and visit. They had to pay a fee, but at least they could peacefully come in, pay the fee, and they could visit the places they wanted to go. The problem was in 1076, about 400 years later, Turkish Muslims moved in. And what actually happened was those visitors who were allowed to come in previously were being attacked as they came in. And so there was persecution that turned. And because of that, then Christians decided maybe we should do something about this. And so this caused the conversation to happen. And they decided to put their forces together. And they decided to try and take back the city of Jerusalem. And in doing so, they were successful. But here's where the problem came. When they were successful, they went too far. They didn't just come in. They didn't come in as an army and only fight against soldiers. They came in and they decided to kill women and children when they got there. And so when they got there, they decided to do this. We look back at history and we say, how do you hold that up to Scripture? How could that be a decision that they would make that as people that would call themselves Christians would have crosses on the flags that they were carrying, they would decide that when they got there, they should kill women and children. 
And so rightfully so, people look at Christianity and they'll point out the Crusades and say, this is a problem for me. I have a problem following a religion where this was true. Let's go to other religions where this happened. And maybe this one you haven't heard a lot about. There was Japanese martyrs. There's not necessarily an easy name like the Crusades to go along with this one. But in the 1600s in Japan, there were a lot of missionaries coming in. And there were hundreds of thousands of Christians, people becoming Christians. And so what happened was at first everything was going well, everything was fine. But then what happened was the government didn't like what was going on. They didn't like that everybody was kind of becoming Christian. They didn't like the Western influence that many of these missionaries were bringing from Europe. And so they decided to turn on those Christians. And so for about 10 to 15 years, at least 2,000 Christians, maybe up to 100,000 Christians were actually killed in Japan. And this was a largely Buddhist government. So I don't say that to push back and go, well, you have, we have the Crusades, but you have this. Like, that's not the point. But the point is to understand that this comes from different religions. And usually Buddhism is something, if you picked out peaceful religions, I mean, Buddhism is at the top. And it's still, it, it happened. This was, and this was against Christians. Let me go to the next one, the Holocaust. Now this one we know about, World War II, Germany's moving across, they're taking Jews, putting them in concentration camps. World War II starts. What about this one? How does this one connect? Well, there wasn't necessarily a religious backing to this, which is kind of the point that there wasn't a religious backing to this. But what Hitler actually did was he took Christian things, like he took the Bible, he took some prayers, and he actually changed the words in them to worship himself. And he would take songs and prayers, he would even take verses from Scripture, teach it to the Hitler youth so that he would replace the name with Jesus and he would put himself in there. And so it wasn't necessarily that religion was behind it. In fact, religion wasn't behind it, but religion was used to leverage power and to cause people to follow him and to indoctrinate people. And the last one is the one that we're probably the most familiar with, and it's 9-11. I remember I was in seventh grade, and my teacher came in, not my teacher, it was the principal. My teacher kind of stood aside, the, the principal came up, and she explained what happened. As a 12-year-old, I didn't get it. And then I went home and watched the news, and I got it. I understood what happened. And so as time went on in the next few days, the next few weeks, we had the assumption that these were Muslim men that were trying to kill Americans because what they believed was they would be rewarded in the afterlife for doing so. And so in all of these cases, we have Christianity being found guilty, absolutely, of this. But we have other religions being found guilty as well. And we have non-religious cases where this has happened. We have non-religious ideas or, 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 or worldviews that have caused violence as well. And so we start this conversation. If someone ever comes to you and asks you this question, we have to admit that it's true. Unfortunately, religion, including Christianity, has helped to cause religion, or sorry, cause violence. So then the question is this, why? Why, why does religion lead to violence. I think the first thing that happens is fear. Fear comes in because people start to change what we believe should be true. People start to infringe on the way we think the world should work because of what we believe religiously. And when that happens, we, we get upset. We want to protect it. We want to stop people from changing 
the way that we see the world around us or if we see the world start to go away that we don't think it should go, we want to push back against that. And so out of fear, we bristle up, we get our arms together and we start to go after somebody. The second thing might be power. I said with the Holocaust, right? Hitler used religious texts to gain power. And so when we think about that, it, it is true that religion can lead to power. And again, going back to church history, I don't want today to all be a history lesson, but I think it's important to have the conversation. Before the Reformation, what went on was people didn't have scripture. Like we have scripture and we're going to go to it in a little bit and you can just open your phone, right? And see what it says. And if I say something wrong or if I misquote a verse, you can tell me like right now. They couldn't do that. And the people that understood the scriptures had all the power. And so when they would decide to teach something that wasn't true, no one, many people didn't know that it wasn't true. And so people have used religion to gain power. And I think the third thing, and sometimes this isn't even a bad thing, but there's a need for protection. And people would even look, and maybe we've done this. We've, we've looked at people around and we've said, because of our faith, we want to protect other people. There's another people group or there's another person that I want to step in and I want to help. And I think that because I'm a Jesus follower, I should do that. And that's not always a bad thing, but it does cause sometimes us to lash out or do things that cause violence. And so in religion, Christianity and others, I think that fear, power and protection will all cause people to respond in a violent way because of what we believe. But yet here's the thing, and, and here's what I want us to understand as we move forward in this conversation today, and as we understand what this means as Christians, and we try and contribute in the opposite way, that, that violence would not be a part of Christianity, is that Jesus never calls us to violence. Jesus never called anyone to violence. In fact, he had the opportunity to use his power in whatever way he wanted, and yet he never called us to violence. I want to go now to scripture and I want to look at, we're going to start with Luke chapter 6. And of course you can open your physical Bible if you have it. You can go on your phone if you want to go to our website. Go to the follow along tab. All the verses will be there. All the notes will be there for you. And of course the verses will be up on the screen. And so we're going to start in Luke 6. We're going to start in verse, verses 27 and 28. This is what it says, starting in verse 27. It says, but to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. We jump down to verse 35 where Jesus kind of doubles down on this. He says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great. And you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. Verse 36 simply says, you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Now I want to pause here and kind of, I don't want to skip over those first few verses because it would be easy to, to read this and just get to verse 36 and just say, you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. And we just walk away. We go, okay, I can be compassionate. Let's just keep moving. But if we look at those verses again, 27 and 28, 28 let's, let's just think about exactly what he's saying. He says, do, or sorry, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. So if somebody says to you or shows to you that they're your enemy, love them. If they hate you, they literally say to you, I hate you, do good to them. 
If they curse you, bless them. If they hurt you, I mean really hurt you, they say something that hurts you, they do something against you that hurts you, Jesus says, pray for them. I don't know about you. My first response when somebody hurts me is not to pray for them, just being honest. I won't necessarily, I'm not going to like slug them. My, my response is not to hurt them. Probably going to walk away, stay away from them. But I don't think to pray for them. Then he goes on again in verse 35. Love your enemies. Do good to them. This is interesting. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. So if someone's your enemy, give to them and don't expect them to reciprocate. That doesn't sound like logic. When you really think about this and you, if you just had this conversation with Jesus, I would look at him and go, you can't mean that. Like, do you understand? Like, do you, like, Somebody really hurts me. Someone actually, someone literally says, I hate you. I'm your enemy. And my response to them is supposed to be that I love them, that I pray for them, that I do good to them, that I, I lend to them and don't even expect them to repay me. But see, the second half of 35 is where this really has to sink in. So then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. And then we have to recognize we've been in the unthankful and wicked camp. That's been us at some point. And so if God looks at us as unthankful and wicked and says, I will be kind to you, we have no right in these other situations where someone is unthankful or wicked to us to say, I'm not going to do the same. So not only does Jesus not call us Sorry, he doesn't cause us to violence, but he calls us to something in the opposite. He calls us to love and to care for those people. And I think this is true. I think sometimes religious violence comes not from a commitment to Jesus, but to a commitment to an ideal. I think what, what can happen sometimes is as religious people, whether it's Christians or others, we have an ideal of what things should be like. We look at maybe scripture, we look at what we believe to be true, and we say our world or our situation should look like X, Y, Z. And so when things don't look that way, we get upset. We want to protect that. We want to cause that to be different. Let's take this example. We have an idea of how people should respond to us. We have an idea of how people should interact with us. And they react the opposite, or they interact with us or say things that are the opposite of what we think should be ideal. And what do we do? We get upset. We get angry. Now, I want to show you something. Jesus doesn't say you don't have the right to be angry. He doesn't say you don't even have the right to be upset or to respond in a negative way. You could still maybe have that right, but what he says is that's not what I'm calling you to. And so what happens is when we respond in a negative way or, or in times in religion, especially in Christianity, where we've responded in a violent way, it's not because of a commitment to Jesus. It's because we have a commitment to our own ideal that we're trying to protect. Now, let me kind of parse this out a little bit and help us understand, because some of you are going, I'm not going to take a sword and go after somebody, right? It's not going to happen. I'm not going to pick up a weapon and go after somebody because of my religion. It's just not going to happen, which is good. But how does this play out in every day today? Do we respond with vicious words? towards somebody? I think of a, a weapon that we might pick up as a keyboard or our phone 
and we start to respond in not physical violence, but words can be violence. Words can hurt. Words can bring people down. And so when we respond in a way where we lash out at somebody, we attack them verbally or we, or we do things to, I don't know, pull them down, tear them down. That's a way that we respond in violence today. I want to go to Philippians chapter 3 now. We're going to read verses 17 to 21. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. And he starts off in verse 17 saying, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Now it sounds like Paul's being a little bit arrogant here. Maybe he was a little bit. But what he's saying is we're trying to follow Jesus. And so I want you to follow me as I follow Jesus. I want you to follow those who are also following Jesus as an example to you. Verse 18, he says, For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19, they are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. We're going to come back to that section. Verse 20, but we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. Verse 21, he will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. I want to go back to verse 19, like I said, and I'm going, to, I'm going to list these things up here on the screen for us so we understand. He says three things about these people that are headed for destruction. He says, their God is their appetite. Have you ever felt that? The other day, uh, on Friday, I had to go renew my license, um, and so I drove down to Lancaster to renew my license, and when I got out, it was about lunchtime. And so uh, I had a craving at that moment. I don't live near a Chick-fil-A and so I, ought to, I started to crave Chick-fil-A, and, and the thought went through my mind, should I drive over and get Chick-fil-A? I decided in the moment, I was like, no, I'm going to save the money, I'm going to go back to church, get some stuff done, whatever. My wife texts me later in the day, says, I'm at Chick-fil-A, do you want anything? <laughs> right? Lord heard me, right? No, I'm just kidding, that's not true. But you get, an, you get an appetite for something. You get a craving for something. And what happens? It can control what you choose to do next. It almost controlled where I drove to. But that can happen with food. It can happen for an experience. It can happen with anything where all of a sudden our appetite is for something and it causes us to live out something that's opposite of what we should do or maybe not the best decision. And what Paul says is these people that seemingly might be Christians, their actions say otherwise. And one of the parameters he gives them, he says, their God is their appetite. Not their appetite is for God, to understand him, to know him, to be like him. But their God is their appetite. So whatever they want, whatever they want to bring to themselves is going to dictate how they live. The second thing is they brag about shameful things. The things that they should be ashamed of, the things that they should never be proud of, the things that they should be embarrassed about are the things that they brag about. And then they think only about this life. I would say that when we respond violently 
remember, not necessarily a weapon, but just lashing out at people, whatever that means, right? We respond in a violent way to others out of something that we would believe is because of our religion. These things are true of us. That our appetite in that moment is to see somebody else be wrong. Our appetite in that moment is to see us look right. Our appetite is for things to change. That we brag about shameful things. That we take pride in the fact that we put somebody down. Or we take pride in the fact that we got the last word in. That we think only about this life. We think about this day, what we want to see happen, and we don't think about what's coming. I've seen this be true, not of people here, but I and, and just in general, just I've seen people be like this. And people that are like this, they respond in violent ways to others because they think it's coming from their religion. But really, this is what I think it is. Violence and hate attached to Christianity only exists to protect a man-made version of our faith. We ascribe something to Christianity. We have an ideal about what we think Christianity should be. And so when someone attacks that, we respond violently because we want to protect that thing. We want our truth, our ideal to be held up. But I want to go back to verse 21 in Philippians 3 for a second. Because this is a really important verse. It says in verse 21, He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. You want to know one of the great truths about God that I'm so happy is true? That God doesn't need our power to be in control. It says he's going to put everything back together. He's going to bring everything under his control. God doesn't need me to be in control. He doesn't need my words. He doesn't need my life. He doesn't need my vote. He doesn't need my post. He doesn't need any of it. He is always in control. And when I recognize that, when, when things start to go to a place where I don't want culture to go or I don't want decisions to be made or I don't want whatever it is, I can sit back and go, you know what? I don't get why it's this way today. But I know God's in control. If we read to the end of Scripture, we know what happens. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't stand up. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak truth. Let me, let me just comment on that for a minute. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be true to Scripture. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't, st I shouldn't stand here, Pastor Andrew, or we in our conversation shouldn't speak truth, scriptural truth to other people. And we shouldn't, in times where we see things going the opposite way, that we shouldn't influence things in the right way. And we should say what's true. Stand up when things are wrong. We should vote maybe a certain way, or we should show up at a certain rally and say, we're going to support this idea because we believe that idea is scriptural. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is those things have to be done under the idea that God is still in control and that we would stand up for those things. But I think we've also romanticized the idea of fighting for what we believe. And I think that's an American thing, right? Like we're celebrating today, we celebrate our independence. What did Americans have to do to get our independence? We had to fight somebody, right? We take pride in that a little bit. I mean, we beat up Britain. We were this tiny little country, right? We get like excited about that. And so we romanticize the idea, but Jesus doesn't tell us to fight for him. He says we have to speak truth. He says we have to love people. He says we have to look like him, but he never says we have to fight for him. And so do we want to be truthful? Absolutely. Do we want to speak what's true? Absolutely. Do we want to be true to scripture? Absolutely. Are we going to act on that? Absolutely. But how did Jesus say to do that? 
out of love. And so the question that we come to kind of to understand this question of violence and how we keep, the question is how do we keep violence out of Christianity? And just one note about, again, about the way that Jesus did things is that Jesus had access to more firepower than any nation could ever imagine. And yet he chose peace. Think back to the story of when Judas comes to betray Jesus and Peter decides he's going to take violent action, right? He pulls out a sword, goes after a guy and chops his ear off. What does Jesus say to Peter? Those who live by the sword, die by the sword. He says, if I wanted to, I could have angels here in a second, more than you could ever imagine. And I could change all of this. He says, that's not, it's not what we're supposed to do. It's not the way that this is supposed to play out. So we have to remember that when we think about Jesus. And so there's three things I think we can lean into as we understand this. The first thing is that I think we can create a space to disagree without being disagreeable. Have you ever met somebody who's disagreeable? Who just wants to fight because they want to fight? You just want to disagree over stuff? I have a, a couple of friends and I who have been working on um, doing some podcast episodes. And there's a, another um, guy that we know from college who has a different view on some things than us. And so uh, my other friend said he reached out to him and said, would you come on a podcast episode with us? And I'll be honest, my immediate response was, I want to be on that podcast because I want to get him. I want to tell him what's up. I want to tell him why he's wrong. I want to tell him why scripture says he's wrong. That's me. I, I'm actually a little bit like, I like arguing. My wife will tell you that. I like arguing. Okay. It's bad. I need to make sure that I don't do that very often. But that's my response. Honestly, I, I, I want to engage in that. I want to go there. I want to have that conversation. And what did I have to do? I had to stop because the place that we want to create, the space that we want to be able to disagree is to understand somebody else and not just fight. Can I learn something from somebody else who thinks something differently than me? Yes, I can. Does it mean I have to agree with them 100%? Nope. Can I leave that conversation saying, I disagree with you, but I love you as a person. Yup, I can say that. Can I be heard? And can I hear them and still walk away having made sure I stood up for what was true, but yet didn't lash out at them? Yeah. So I would encourage us to create spaces where we can disagree with people. We can have good conversation with people without just trying to be disagreeable or to attack what they think. The second thing is this, if the gospel is presented as anything but good news, it is no longer the gospel. The gospel is supposed to be good news. Let's go back to the Crusades example. No one that the Crusaders went after wanted to become Christians. I don't think so anyway. Why would you? Why would you want to watch these people come in and fight you and kill people and then be like, oh yeah, I want to be like them. It doesn't make sense. When we show up, we're supposed to be handing good news and understanding that God loves people, that God is kind to those who are wicked and those who are unthankful, like Paul says. And so when we show up, we're supposed to be telling them that there's a God who loves them. There's a purpose for their life. There's a good news that we have for them. And too many times I think we show up and we start with what's wrong with them. That is the gospel, right? We have to recognize that there's something wrong. But at the same time, we can start on that with the idea that even though there's something wrong, even though sin, 
is present, there's still grace present as well. And we allow Jesus to make the change in their life before we tell them how to change in order to meet Jesus. So we present the gospel as good news. And then here's the last one. And I think we could, this is such a simple sentence, but I think we could spend so much time on it. Respond to hate with love. Like if that was like, you just like printed it out and put it on your mirror every day so you saw it. You were just reminded every single day when someone responds with hate to me, I'm just going to love them. You have to remind yourself of that every day. Is it the first thing that we think of? Is it the first direction we want to go? No. In fact, I saw this quote from one of my favorite authors and podcasters. His name is Kerry Newhoff. He said, hate generates more clicks than love. So if you post something online and you want to get clicks, you're going to post something that's going to be controversial. You're going to post something that puts somebody else down. Because engaging with hate is much easier than engaging with love. Engaging with hate, all, all it means is you just have to be able to say something and walk away or do something and walk away and put that other person down and never worry about them again. If you're going to engage with love, that means you actually have to build a relationship with them. You have to have good conversation with them. You have to engage well with them. And that takes work. It's hard work to show love when someone hates you. But it's what we're called to do. It's what Jesus did. And so we can't Leave that behind. And if we respond to hate with love every single time, it will remove the violent actions from our religion or the violent responses from our lives. You know, I've kind of landed over the last few weeks, if you've been following on, I've landed in a similar place over the last couple of weeks. And that place is kind of just this understanding that when we look at what Jesus called us to do, the reason that the world asks us these difficult questions is because they look at Jesus and see that we don't look like him. And when they see we don't look like him, they call us out on it. They say, listen, I can read scripture, I can understand what Jesus looked like, but what you're doing right now does not look like Jesus. Your violent response to me does not look like Jesus. So they say, why would I follow you? Why would I follow Jesus if this is the type of thing his followers do. But I want us to understand something as we process through these questions. Our answer must consistently and always be Jesus. There's not another good answer. We're called to follow him. We're called to look like him. And so when someone comes up to us and asks us this question, or we start to have this thought process, like what do I do with the violence that Christianity has caused or religion has caused? What do we do with that? Well, we have to acknowledge that it's true. That that question is warranted from things that Christians have done, from things that other religious people have done, and non-religious people have done. And then we look at it and we say, you know what, though? Those people didn't look like Jesus, and my goal is to look like Jesus. And so my response is, Jesus. <laughs> In those conversations that are difficult where people have seemingly things that they have uh, ideas that oppose Scripture, go against Scripture, how would Jesus respond? When I show up and I share the gospel with somebody, I ask how would Jesus share the gospel with somebody? When somebody shows hate towards me, I ask the question, how would Jesus respond? Not what makes me feel good, 
Not what makes me feel better, not what makes them feel worse. But how would Jesus respond? And if we respond as Jesus would respond, violence will be removed from our lives and people will not see Christianity as violence. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, it can be very, very difficult to not respond in violence or lash out or say things or do things sometimes that are detrimental to sharing the gospel with others. It's easy when people show hate towards us or they curse us or they do things that genuinely hurt us. It's difficult to respond in the ways that you've called us to respond, but we ask that you would give us the strength to be able to do that. We pray that no one would look at us and say that we've contributed to the violence or to the harshness of religious beliefs that have been a part of our world and a part of history for a long time. And we ask that when we show up and they and people see us, they see you and they see the good news of the gospel. We ask that we would stand up for truth and we would be ready to defend scripture when we are called upon to do so, but that we would do so in love because we want others to come to know you. In Jesus' name.